in Revelation 2, we're going to do kind of a survey tonight of Revelation 2 and 3. I want to go through it pretty quickly because as most of you know, we have been, we're looking at these passages in our Sunday morning preaching. And these are the seven churches in Revelation. So I put the map back up so you can see here we are in modern day Turkey, would have been Asia in the days that the Apostle John is writing this book of the Revelation. And so the first letter to the angel of the church at Ephesus is right here. And Ephesus would have been a major port city. So they would have taken the letter that they received and gone from Ephesus up to Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then finished with Laodicea. And so these are the seven churches. Now, if you remember last week, we said in the book of Revelation, we talked about the outline of the book of Revelation and how the Spirit said to John, speak about the things which you have seen, right? Do you remember that now? Think, preach it, uh, write about the things that you have seen and then write about the things which are and write about the things that are to come. So those three things, things that you know, John, things that are happening right now and then the things that are yet to come. So when you look at, I, I believe Revelation 2 and 3 are the things that are. It's what we think of as the church age. Now, I spent a few weeks talking about different ways that people interpret the book of Revelation. I'm just going to move on from that and say we are interpreting the book of Revelation from a dispensational, premillennial viewpoint. And so as I see it, we are biblically right now in what is known as the church age. So if you're thinking historically how God has worked with people, it began with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And God spoke directly to Adam and Eve. Well, they fell into sin. And then God spoke through Noah and his family. Eventually then God dealt with the nation of Israel. And for a long period of time, God's focus was on his chosen people, Israel, who would bring the Messiah into the world and then usher in the Messianic kingdom. Well, in between the, the, in between the promise to Israel, Israel and then yet the unfulfilled promises to Israel, you have the church age. That's when the church is established and the church, Jew and Gentile, make up one new body in Christ. And that is the age in which we live. The next thing that's going to happen, and we're going to see it in the book of Revelation, is the Lord is going to again turn his attention to the people of Israel. And those are the things that are yet to come. We'll study those in coming weeks. But right now, we find ourselves in the things which are the church age. And as John the Revelator received these letters to the seven churches, the key concept tonight is this. What we're doing is we are looking at characteristics of the last days of the church age. How many of you ever heard somebody say, boy, it looks like we are in the last days? You know what I'm talking about? Well, let me ask you a question. When did the last days begin? When did the last days begin? I can tell you specifically when they began. Does anybody know when the, when the last days began? They began on the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost. And we'll look at that actually in the coming week that on the day of Pentecost, when they miraculously spoke in tongues and there was a miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the apostle Peter said to the Jews, he said, these are the days 
that Joel spoke of. These are the last days. Now that's a, so the church has always been in the last days. We are no more, well, I I guess we are, I guess, more in the last days because time has passed. But in the prophetic sense, we are no more in the last days today than the church was in AD 33, right? So that is, the, the church has always been in these last days. And so in these pictures of these seven churches that we look at, in these pictures, we're going to see characteristics and attributes that Jesus and the apostles warned would be present in these days leading up to Christ's return. So the seven churches, let's just make a, I want to just point these out tonight, and I want us to realize this. The warnings given to each church, we need to be aware of today. So on Sunday mornings, we're kind of looking more at the positive. The theme is keep shining. What should we be proactively doing? But what I want to focus on tonight as we look at these seven churches is what should we look out for? Because not only do you find these characteristics here in Revelation 2 and 3, but you find these warnings all throughout the New Testament. So let's look at it briefly here. So we're in chapter 2, and let's look at verse number 1. Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience. And how thou canst not bear them which are evil. Thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. So they're commended for this. this they're standing fast to the truth. And in verse number three, they're, they're hard workers, and they're, they're holding the line, and they're working really hard. But when you come to verse number four, this is the warning. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. So what is the mark, what is the mark of the church at Ephesus? Well, simply put, the warning to the church at Ephesus is this, you have left your first love. You've left your first love. So I wanted to show you, and if you look, if you have a handout tonight, you'll see this. Jesus actually warned about this. In Matthew 24, you have a corresponding warning. Matthew 24 is the the Olivet Discourse, Jesus speaking of the last days to come. And Jesus himself said this, And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. You see that because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. What is Jesus' warning is the, that is the contributing factor to people's love waning in the last days? Sin. And what about sin? It abounds. It's everywhere. It's all surrounding us. And so what happened to the church at Ephesus is they, they fulfilled the warning. They sadly fulfilled the warning that Jesus gave. That because iniquity abounds, the love of many shall wax cold. We see there what Jesus says is that, that because of all the sin and iniquity, but then also how many people will stop loving? Many. Many. The love of many shall wax cold. And remember, while this isn't necessarily something that obviously it it was dominating the church at Ephesus almost 2,000 years ago, and it can dominate church culture and churches today. Can I ask you a question tonight? Maybe you can help me. We can talk about it a little bit. What do you think contributes? What do you think contributes to 
the loss of love for the Lord. As you think about this and what we just read and what we're thinking about, what are some things that, if we could just have a, open it up to a brief discussion, any thoughts on what, what contributes? Yeah. Okay, so you're observing people, their view of what sin is, is, is relaxed. They're not as concerned about it. Right, it's, it's commonplace. Yeah, in the back. Yeah, we get used to it because it's, it's so pervasive. You just, you see it on television, you see it everywhere. It's interesting here that it seems like it's not that the sin is causing us to sin more necessarily, is it? Because Ephesus wasn't a sinful church. They were not loving. So the abounding iniquity is causing people to love the Lord less. That's interesting. Because you can't be comfortable with sin and love the Lord. What did Jesus also say? He said, you are... You, um, you're my disciples or you're my friends if you do what? Yeah, if you keep my commandments. If you keep my commandments. So the, there's this relationship. You can't love God and love sin simultaneously. So, yeah, I think that contributes. What else do you think contributes to in, in churches and lives? Just the, the love starts to wane, yeah. Difficulties, yeah, potentially. Although, usually... It's the opposite that happens. Usually it's good times because what we're going to see the next church is in hard times, they actually are doing better, in, spiritually speaking. Anything else? Any thoughts on that? Yeah. I'd say like the lack of love for God is only exaggerated or heightened by the love for ourselves. Oh, Yeah. Right. And we actually I put those two together. Like so what Lane's saying is our love for ourselves. What Brittany's saying is our own emotions. We live in a very therapeutic culture. Right. And what you find even in a lot of church culture is the whole theme of the church is to minister to people's emotional needs. Now, does the gospel meet emotional needs? Of course it does. Of course it does. But that's the byproduct of us realizing who we are and how much we need the Lord. But if we get that around, if it becomes the focus of my needs and what I need, then we're really loving ourselves more than we're loving the Lord. And so Jesus warned about it. It's there. It's present in the, in the church at Ephesus. And so the warning is there. Be careful. So now we move on to the next church, which is Smyrna. And again, I said we're going to do this just in a quick survey style tonight so, so that we go through it. Now, in verse number eight, we see Smyrna introduced. Unto the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These things saith the first and the last, he which was dead and is alive. Now what you're going to notice here is this church, this church is one of two churches where nothing negative is said about this church. Not one thing. I know thy works, tribulation, poverty, and then the parentheses. Don't you love the parentheses? But you're rich. You're so poor but you're rich. Put that away for a minute. Put that aside because you're going to see an opposite church in a little while that is rich, but you're really poor, he's going to say. 
I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but of the synagogue of Satan. These would be people that are attacking them, accusing them, imprisoning them. Fear none of those things. Don't be afraid. The devil will cast some of you into prison that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. What is the significance of the ten days? I have no idea. Some people will make a historical reference to that there, there were ten major persecutions under the Roman Empire, and they lasted about a period of 200 years. They look at about ten emperors doing different, um, different uh, um, persecutions. My personal belief on the ten days is that the church at, that this was for the church at Smyrna, and that if you were a part of the church at Smyrna, you would have come through this tribulation and recognized what that ten days was. That's my personal opinion on the ten days. That because we know that this is a letter written both to us to learn from, but also written to a specific church, that if you were a Smyrna believer, that ten days would have spoken to you in a very personal way. I don't know that for sure, but it's just a thought that I have on the significance of the 10 days. Um, and encourage them to be faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. We're going to preach on this church this Sunday morning. It's interesting because this Sunday also happens, and this was pure accident of the Lord, that this Sunday also coincides with the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church. And so I didn't plan that. It just dawned upon me this week that I think that is coming up this Sunday. And so we're going to actually have a, a, the message on the persecuted church at Smyrna, and we'll take time to pray for our persecuted brothers here. But the really, as you look at this, um, the church at Smyrna is the church that faces persecution. The church at Smyrna is not the church of the past. It is the church of today, all throughout the world. In fact, I want you to realize this as you see the as you see the, um, the young people in our church, some of you have, uh, how many of you have gotten to meet the, the young man, John? Have you met John yet? John is the young Chinese man uh, who is here as an as a international student from China. And John's family are believers and members of an underground church in China. It's quite astounding. Um, and Ken has shared with me that he's, he's just rock solid as far as, as far as the language barrier can uh, allow, right? It's been an interesting experience, wouldn't you say? Comes with the joy of the Lord. You see him saying it's awesome, but I asked him, he said that his family, their church is about a dozen. If, again, there's a language barrier. Um, it could be 1,200 for all I know, but as I understand, there's about a dozen and they meet in a, some business place somewhere on Sunday afternoons, um, and they have an illegal house church in China. The persecution of the church is just as, the persecuted church, Smyrna, is just as much the church today, if not more so, than it has ever, it has ever been. So nothing negative said about Smyrna. He just says, be faithful, be faithful. Do you think Smyrna was a, was a perfect church? Probably not. Probably not. 
But the Lord couldn't find anything to criticize be, be, or that he desired to because they were faithful in the face of persecution. Jesus spoke about this too. He said to expect persecution. He said in Matthew 10, beware of men. They will deliver you up to the councils. They will scourge you in their synagogues. Ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake for testimony against them and the Gentiles. Paul would write to Timothy, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Shall suffer persecution. So there is much that we can learn from the persecuted church. And also I think as in America, I think there's two things. One, I think we ought to be very careful not to make our light persecution that we face. Americans are talking about that a lot, right? Like you hear American Christians talk about, well, the dark days of persecution are coming. You know, religious liberty is at stake. I agree that we should be on guard and vigilant to preserve the liberty that we have. 100%. When, when our religious liberty is a gift, we should preserve it. Could we face our things being lined up for us to face persecution in days to come? I'm afraid that they are. It looks like they are. But we have not faced them yet. And there is, if you look at the court cases, I was listening to a podcast recently, there is actually more religious, more religious freedom currently for all faiths than there ever has been in America. Interesting if you look at it, but they don't have a time for a whole discussion like that. But we need to be careful not to develop a martyr complex when there are true martyrs all around the world. So just, just something to think about there as we look at a, the, the Smyrna church. That may happen in the United States, but for now we, we're thankful that we haven't faced those days. Now we come to a church that is active in our culture, and that's the church at Pergamos. This is a concerning one. The angel of the church at Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the, sh hath the sharp sword with two edges. What is this? What is this? imagery make us think of? Huh? Hebrews 4.12 maybe? That there's, there is the word of God, it's quick and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. Any other ideas about what this imagery speaks of? Right, Jesus with the sword, exactly. And the sword, I believe it's, if you trace it through the book of Revelation, I think you're looking at a warning of judgment. And there's a, a, a stern warning to the church at Pergamos, and it's a warning, I believe, of judgment. Now, there's some good things, though. You, they dwell in a place, they dwell in a particularly evil place. In fact, wherever, whatever was going on in Pergamos, it's like Satan had headquarters there. You see that in this verse? It's like, Man, the, the, Satan has his headquarters in your city. I get it. You're surrounded by wickedness. And you're holding fast my name. You, you haven't denied the faith. There's even a martyr Antipas there. Uh, and in case you missed it the first time, where Satan dwells. This is the place where Satan is, Pergamos. But I have a few things against thee. Because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, to commit fornication. This goes back to the Old Testament story of Balaam, who, do you remember that he's the one where his donkey was speaking to him? Do you remember that story in the Old Testament? Well, the sin of Balaam was he, he 
was trying to find a way to curse the people of God if it were possible, and what was his motivation for doing it? Money. The, 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 king, the king Balak wanted to get him to curse Israel, and Balaam was motivated by money and evil. This church dwells where Satan's seat is, but it's not an excuse for their behavior. What have they started to do? If you could think about it practically speaking, what have these people started to do? Think of where they live and what's going on now. What's happening? Yeah. It's a church that has begun to mirror the wickedness in the culture where they are. It's a church that rather than, rather than um, standing strong, I mean, they've not denied the faith. They still hold firm to what they believe. But what they believe and what they do are not congruent. They're dishonoring the name of the Lord. And specifically what's going on is they're eating things sacrificed to idols and they're committing fornication, idolatry. Now, is it always wrong to eat things sacrificed to idols from what we know from the scripture? Is it always wrong to eat things sacrificed to idols? No. But if you study Paul's writings, there is a time when it's clearly wrong to eat meat offered to idols. Does anybody know when that is? If you go to the marketplace and somebody's got a, somebody's got a shop set up and they're just selling meat and this happens to be offered to an idol and you go to the supermarket in that day and you buy the meat and you eat it, have you done anything wrong? No. But when have you done something wrong? It's not just when you know that it has been because it would have been hard to find any meat that wasn't sacrificed to idols because that, that was just the culture of the day. So Paul's like, look, just eat the meat. Unless it's going to cause your brother to stumble, you can eat the meat. There was one time, who knows when you, you're not to eat the meat offered to idols. Anybody? Yeah? There's one other specific time, though, when it's always a sin to eat the meat offered to idols. This is something that's missed a lot. People don't realize this. Like, it's when, he says, if you go to somebody's house, like a banquet, because banquets were very popular in that culture. You go to the banquet, the man stands up, and he dedicates the meal to the pagan god. And he says, we eat the meat of the goddess Artemis, let's say. That was the big Ephesian goddess, Artemis. Let's eat the meat of Artemis. And everybody at the party, I don't know how they did it, but they raised a glass and they ate the meat. Because when you did that, what were you saying? Yeah, you were, going, you were coming into agreement with them about it. If you just picked it up at the marketplace and it happened to be meat offered to idols, no big deal. But what was happening is they were afraid to take a stand. They were afraid to be marked as different. And when this meat was, was, when this meat was um, ritualistically offered and everyone there knew what they were doing by partaking in this, they were giving credence to that god or goddess, that would be sinful. And Paul makes that abundantly clear. It's not just a stumbling block issue. It would be always wrong to eat the meat under those circumstances. And I think the point here is this. This is a church that has not separated from the idolatry around them. Now, we have seen this. We have seen this in quote-unquote Christian denominations who will go into, who will go into 
um, parts of the world. In fact, this was very popular in Roman Catholicism for their, their evangelists, if you will, to go into places where they worship all kinds of false gods, and what would they do? They would say, well, they w- it's called syncretism. It's when you combine the false worship with a supposed true worship of Jesus. And so you go to places where pagan influences are combined with Christianity. And to be honest with you, just put it bluntly, that is Roman Catholicism. It's the, it's the merger of false idolatry with the worship of Jesus Christ. You, you put that together and you have what happened in, in Pergamos. That, that's the fruit of a Pergamos kind of church. But then what flowed out of that was not only was idolatry, but it was a church that was filled with sexual sin. And sexual sin was pervasive among the Greek and Roman world, and the church has just gone along with it. We see that happening today in American churches. Purity, sexual purity is a mark of Christianity. It has all, in every culture where Christianity has always been, been sexual purity has been a distinguishing mark. And it was lost in Pergamos, and I'm afraid it's being lost in our culture today. And so as a church, we have to take a, a clear stand for these things. So this is Pergamos. So Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos. Jesus warned, uh, the Apostle Paul warned about that. 2 Timothy 3, in the last days, perilous times shall come. Men shall be lovers of their own selves. And he goes on and he finishes with this statement, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. All of these things have been around from the very beginning. These churches are giving the evidence of it. So, now we come from, from Smyrna to Thyatira. I'm sorry, from Pergamos to Thyatira. Verse number 18. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, charity, service, faith, thy patience, thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest, or you allow, that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. So we get a little more specificity. This church in Thyatira has the same problems, has the same problems as Pergamos, except now we learn a little bit more. And what is the cause of this error in the church? What's the cause of it? This prophetess. This false prophetess that is in the church. And so the problem in the church in Thyatira is that this is a church that is affected by false prophets. Now, who is this woman Jezebel? Again, we don't know. We we cannot say for sure. But apparently there is this false prophecy. Now, this one is a huge warning for the church. 
Because I only gave you on your notes tonight three references to false prophets in the, the, the New Testament. But there are more. It's all over. This warning is all over the New Testament. And it's not spoken about a whole lot. But in Matthew 24, 11, Jesus says, Many false prophets shall rise. Notice, many. Many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. In John, 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because, what's it say again? You guys all with me? 1 John 4, 1, it's on your hand out on the back. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because what? Many false prophets are gone out into the world. 2 Peter 2, 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Jesus says many false prophets. John says many false prophets. Peter says many false prophets. And we know that the apostle Paul spoke about false prophets on several occasions. So what should we be on the lookout for? Yeah, false prophets, false prophets. Now, I think there's, when it comes to false prophets, I've seen two extremes, personally. Maybe you've seen more. But when it comes to false prophets, I've noticed there are some who they just don't like confrontation, right? They just don't like to name names or to be seen as someone who causes division in the church, right? So somebody can get up and say something that is really off and unbiblical, and they're like, well, you know, I don't know if that's really what they meant, or they're just afraid to say, hey, this person is a false prophet. And then I've seen the other extreme, where there are believers that seem to be on a mission to root out every false prophet that, how many know what I'm talking about? They're on a mission. Like, if, if, you, if you sing a song written by someone who believes this or that, you've fallen into false prophecy. If somebody uses a different version of the Bible, they're a false prophet. If somebody dresses different, I mean, I've seen real extremes. I mean, real extremes where all these things are, how do we know, how do we know when we're dealing with a false prophet? Because is there a difference between different biblical inter interpretations and false prophets? Would you say there's a difference? Would you say there's a room, would you say that there's room within the body of Christ for differences of opinion about certain Bible doctrines? Of course there are, right? In fact, if you study history, you know, in just our... Western in Great Britain, in the United States, the great fundamentalist movement of the early of the late 1800s and the early 1900s, it was led by godly Methodists and godly Baptists and godly Presbyterians, some godly Anglicans even. These are people from different denominations that would have disagreed on on some important things, but not the essential things. Yeah. Exactly. Right. For instance, in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about the rapture. There are good Christian people that have different views on the rapture. There are some Christian people, 
hold your breath now if you've grown up in these kind of, in, you know, in very Baptist circles. There are some Christian people that don't believe the rapture as we do at all. They don't view it that way at all. Does that make them false prophets? No. In fact, the Bible actually helps us identify false prophets. What is the mark of a false prophet? What would you say is the mark of a false prophet? There's a twist. Well, that would be a behavior. You're right. The twisting of scripture is going to be a key behavior of a false prophet. But typically regarding what? Regarding, it's more than salvation. Well, again, I think that's a behavior. I think you're absolutely right. They, They have intentions of leading people astray. But you could even be a false prophet with good intentions. The point is this. It's... And John makes this clear in 1 John. It is what do they say about the person and work of Jesus? Who do they say Jesus is? And what do they say he has accomplished? That is the mark of every spirit that confesses that Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that denies it is not of God. What John is dealing with in 1 John is the Gnostic heresy. They were people who denied the, the humanity of Christ. And what we, what we learn from this is the, what you say about who Jesus is and what his death and resurrection accomplished, that is the mark of a false prophet. So we need to, on the one hand, be very clear. When somebody says something that is really pulling you away from the simplicity of the gospel, that's a mark of the false prophet. Paul would talk about people that said that Jesus wasn't sufficient. In Galatians, he marks false prophets as people who said that Jesus, yes, Jesus is the Son of God, but you have to add add works to your salvation. You're attacking the, the sufficiency of Christ, the work of Christ. And then, on the other hand, there are some like like in Mormonism and in the Jehovah's Witness and then in in some other movements that deny his deity, that say Jesus is not God. Yes, he might be the Savior, but he's not God. Any teaching that, that questions the true identity and work of Jesus, that is the mark of false teaching. Now, does that mean we shouldn't have strong opinions about other doctrines? No, of course we should. I think, you know, I think that even Bible believing Presbyterians who they don't dedicate their babies, they sprinkle their babies. I think that's a big error. I think it's wrong. But at the same time, they don't believe that that saves anyone. They believe in salvation by grace through faith. So I would, so they're brothers in Christ. They're not false prophets. You can be wrong about things, but not be at the level of what is known as a false prophet. I think that's an important distinction for us to make and to understand that. Now, I don't have time to exhaustively discuss this this morning, this evening. You might be like, well, what about this? Or what about that? Or I don't understand this or I don't understand that. And we could have conversations about those things. But mark it down. The, 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 the line of separation, the line that must be drawn is who is Jesus and what did his, salvation, what did his, his death and resurrection accomplish? Those are the marks. And when you get those things wrong, that's the mark of the false prophet. And we should be on the lookout for those who would do that. Okay? Sardis. Sardis is the next church. This is interesting. We'll just look at verse number one in chapter three. To the church at Sardis, 
These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God, the seven stars. I know thy works. You have a name that you're alive, but you're really what? Dead. I would say what you identify here, and, and there's more we'll talk about when we preach on the church at Sardis, but the Sardis is a church of hypocrisy. As Titus says, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient unto every good work reprobate. In 2 Timothy 3, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. These people put on a good show. They, they, they look the part. Jesus would warn about the wheat and the tares. Paul says avoid people who, who they seem to have a form of godliness, but they're not the real deal. And he says in tech, 2 Timothy 3.10, he says, in contrast to those people, he says, you've fully known my doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience. What, what do you think one of the greatest pr protections against hypocrisy is? It's kind of a difficult, I, I've got a specific answer I'm looking for. I can't, you, you probably wouldn't, the way I asked the question, you're probably not, you know, I hate it when people ask questions like that, like what answer do you want me to give? This is one of those. So I'm just going to give it to you. I think the local church, the local church is a protection against hypocrisy. Why? Or why should it be? Okay. I think there's something super practical. Look at what Paul says, in, in the, I put it on your handout in that 2 Timothy passage. They knew Paul wasn't they knew, in contrast to the hypocritical people that had a form of godliness but denied the power, in verse 10 that I gave you there, Paul explains to them why they can trust him. And why is it? Be right, my mom just said it. Because they know him personally. They've spent time with him. They didn't, it, wasn't just, it wasn't just that they went to hear him speak. They knew him personally. And one of the great things about the local church is if we're doing it right, and not all churches do it right, and that allows for hypocrisy, but if we're doing it right, we're spending enough time with each other, we're holding each other accountable enough, we're, we're spending time not just in the church building in the pews, but outside so we can observe each other. And provoke one another to love and good works and say, hey, we need to be the real deal on the inside and on the outside. And so it's important that we have that mutual accountability and that we avoid the hypocrisy. Well, there's two more churches and I'm going to give them to you really quickly. One is Philadelphia. I really can't wait till we get to Philadelphia because if you read the verses about Philadelphia, it's the true and faithful church. There's absolutely nothing Nothing in the church at Philadelphia that they are scolded about. There's no rebuke to this church. In fact, they're the church with the open door. Jesus asked, when the Son of Man comes, is he going to find faith on the earth? The question is, you know, with all of these churches and all the problems in these churches and, the, and the, 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 everything that we've just mentioned, Jesus asked, when the Son of Man comes, will there be faith? But then in Matthew 16, he also reminds us that on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
Until the time of Christ's return, there will be faithful churches. There will be Philadelphia churches. There'll be, there'll be uh, Smyrna churches that are faithful in persecution, and there'll be Philadelphia churches that are faithful in their prosperity. But then, as you know, there's also the Laodicean church. This is the church that's lukewarm. They're wealthy, but spiritually poor. They have everything. Pick it up with me now. We'll finish here. It says in 14 of chapter 3, the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things saith the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Cold or hot. I don't think what he's saying here is, I'd rather you be on fire for the Lord, or I'd rather you just be a cold sinner. I don't think that's his point. I think the point is, do you like to drink hot things? Do you like to drink cold things? Be something. Be distinctive. Be something that can, can bring glory to God, but you're just lukewarm. Lukewarm. And why specifically are they lukewarm? In verse 17, it's because they have everything. They're rich. They have all the stuff. They need nothing. And, and Jesus says, but you don't realize, no, it's not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You have so much. There's so many warnings in the scriptures about riches. The love of money is the root of all evil. The, they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare. And in these prosperous days, we all need to be careful. It, cre it creates a lukewarmness among the church. And that's Laodicea. But the good news the good news is at the end of this chapter. The whole reason Jesus is rebuking the church, if you look at verse 19, you tell me what's the whole reason Jesus is rebuking his church? Because he, he loves his church. Because he loves them. So be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, read it with me, ready? I stand at the door and knock. We often think of this as a message for the unsaved, right? I stand at the door and knock. If you'll open, I'll come into you. But who is this message to? It's to the church. Jesus is saying, I'm on the outside. I want to come. Laodicea, I want to come on the inside. And we'll sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. We have an opportunity. We live, we live in a time when, just like the time that all churches have lived in, there's different things we'll see all around us, but Jesus has called us to be true and faithful in these last days. Will he find faith on the earth? Will we be either the, the Philadelphia or the Smyrna, faithful unto the return of Jesus. John, write about the things you know. Write about the things which are. You and I are living in the things which are. 
we have an opportunity. Let's, let's live for the Lord. And that's a quick survey of the seven churches. Again, we look at them in detail each Sunday morning for the next few weeks. All right. Next, next time we're together, we start looking at the things which are to come. Any questions, comments as we wrap it up? Right. Right. The overcomers actually are interesting because um, the overcomers, I do believe, they represent the true believers in the churches that are in trouble. And it's not that it's not that we overcome by our. We we did this actually two weeks ago on Sunday morning when we talked about this. We went to. First John that says that you have overcome the world. And it's it's God in us that makes us overcomers. So yeah. Anybody else? Anything? We wrap it up. All right. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for the time that we've had tonight. I pray that you just continue to bless us as we study through your word. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for we thank you, Lord, for this day that we live in. Lord, you haven't called us, you've called us to live today. The challenges and benefits and blessings all together of today. So thank you, Lord, for choosing us for this hour. I pray that we'd be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.